The title of the message this morning is Four Keys to a Victorious Christian Life. Four Keys to a Victorious Christian Life. Are you ready? If you're taking notes, here you go. Write these down. First, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. Second, if you would just obey God, he would answer all of your prayers. Third, if you would just come to our church, God will bless you with an abundant life. And fourth, if you just give 20% of your income to my ministry, God will increase it a hundredfold. What's wrong with this picture? These are empty promises based on what we can do, right? Based on what we have to bring to the table. And too often we seek Victory over sin and temptation and the trials in our lives in things that God has not promised us in his word. And we strive using our own man-made formulas, our own man-made methods to attain victory in the Christian life. And I want to submit to you this morning that we are to look to Christ and to look to what God has done in Christ and Christ alone for victory as the grounds for victory in both this life and in the life to come. We're continuing our series in 1 John. Uh, We began this, um, we're beginning the last chapter today. There will be two more messages in 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 5 here for the next three weeks. Uh, And then we'll be beginning our uh, be beginning our summer series in the psalms after that. So, wrapping up first John here in the next few weeks. And we are going to go uh, to God's word now, first uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 as we begin this last chapter. So, please pay attention to the reading of God's word and and see what God would have to say to us this morning through his word. First John 5, beginning verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, again, as we come before you, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would speak through your word, that you would show us the assurance that we have in Christ, the victory that we have in Christ, and that we would live that out, that we would be changed and transformed because of what you have done for us, not because of our own efforts, not because of our own obedience, but because of Christ and our faith in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by looking at verses 4 and 5 here, and we're going to look at this idea of overcoming And victory. Again, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We've talked a lot about First John, how John repeats himself a lot. And you see this word overcome, overcome the world, victory. We see this repeated here. And John has, he's introduced this idea earlier in the letter. In 1 John chapter 1, he introduces the idea of walking in the light, of having fellowship with one another, and how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. And even though, even though he didn't use that exact phrase, victory and overcoming the world, He's beginning to build a case for how we can have victory over the world and over our sin. In chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he writes to the little children, to the young men, to the fathers. And to the young men, he says, you have overcome the evil one. And then he says that they are strong and that the word of God abides in them. So again, this emphasis is on the, the, the fact that the victory does not come from themselves. It doesn't come from within them. It comes from God's word abiding in them and remaining in them. A couple weeks ago, Bill shared with us chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And in that passage, it talked about overcoming the Antichrist because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so speaking about the Antichrist and the evil one, greater is he who is in us. Well, who is in us? We saw it last week, chapter 4, verse 13. The Spirit of God abides in us. Greater is the Spirit who is in us than he who is in the world. So again, the victory is not attributed to us and to something we've done. It's attributed to, to in chapter 2, to God's Word abiding in us. And then to chapter, in chapter 4, to the Spirit of God abiding in us. So God lives in us, he abides in us by his word and by his spirit, and that is how we can have victory in the Christian life. It doesn't come from us, it doesn't come from our own efforts, it doesn't come from how much we can put into it. This whole letter of 1 John is about assurance and about victory because of what God has done for us in Christ. And remember, John is basically writing a commentary on Jesus' earthly ministry, on his teaching and his preaching, especially, we've talked about this, in John chapters 13 to 17. And if you haven't read that, I would encourage you, before we finish this series, go sit down and sit, read it in one, in one sitting, John chapter 13 uh, through 17, and you'll see this idea of abiding and God abiding in us by his spirit and who Christ is. We read from chapter 14 already, we saw that. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples that he has been speaking to them in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when he will tell them plainly about the Father. And they say, oh, now you are speaking plainly. Now we believe. And I love Jesus' response to them. He says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So even in the worst of times, in the midst of the worst tribulation and suffering that we can go through in our lives, we are promised peace Because Jesus has overcome the world. 
Later on in John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Then in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples two times, eight days apart. They were behind closed doors where they were hiding for fear of the Jews. Do you know what the first words out of Jesus' mouth were on both occasions? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I have overcome the grave. I stand here before you, resurrected. I have overcome the world. Do not be afraid. We just celebrated Easter a few weeks ago. And we're now in this post-Easter season where we're reminded that we live in that perpetual promise that Jesus has overcome the world and that he's overcome sin and that he's overcome death, that he's overcome Satan. As we read on Easter morning, Paul's victorious outburst of praise from 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does victory look like in the Christian life? I have good news for you this morning. It's not the four things that I mentioned in the beginning. So you can go ahead and scratch those out if you started writing them down. We don't win We don't overcome in the Christian life by trying harder. In fact, it's the opposite. We win, we overcome by losing. The first key, if you want to write these down, the first key to victory in the Christian life is seen as John drives this point home in the first verse and in verse 4 as he points to our new birth. The first key to victory is the new birth. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Well, you might ask, what does the new birth have to do with losing? Actually, it has everything to do with losing. It's about losing our lives. It's about our old self, our old identity being put to death and being crucified, and us being made new and made alive in Christ. We see this here in verse 1, and, and we need to be careful how we read this verse. And I don't, I don't want to get too technical and too geeky here, but this is one of those things where we don't really see this come out in the English as clearly as we see it in the Greek. The word believe here is actually in the, in the, the present tense, so it's something that we're doing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is, is the Christ... But that word believe is not the main verb in this verse. The main verb is actually has been born. That's all one word in the Greek. And it's, it's in the perfect tense and it's a passive verb. So we've talked about this a few times. The perfect tense is like, if you want to picture it, it's like a dot. It's something that happened in the past and it's an event that already happened. And then there's an arrow shooting off into the future. So it's a past event that's already been accomplished and it has ongoing consequences. Okay, The main verb, John's main point here is that 
we have been born of God. And again, it's passive. It's not something we've done. You didn't born again yourself. You didn't make yourself born again of God. God has made you new. So our believing that Jesus is the Christ is the effect, is the outcome of us being born of God. Faith is a gift of God that follows regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's not, well, I just decide, okay, I'll, find, I'll believe in Jesus and then God makes me born again. We believe and we love and we obey. These are the three tests that we've been looking at. We'll, we'll, see, these, we'll see these throughout these five verses. We believe and we love and we obey and we overcome because we have been born of God. Because we have lost our lives and we have gained eternal life. And this is the number one call to discipleship in the Christian life. It's to lay down our lives for Christ, to lay down our lives for others. How else can we explain how a ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors 2,000 years ago turned the world upside down through a nonviolent revolution? Following a man who was of no reputation, right? Laying down, they all, except John, laid down their lives for their master. And as a result of, of that, we sit here today, worshiping him and laying down our lives for him and for others. What would motivate five young couples Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Pete and Olive Fleming, Ed and Marilou McCulley, Nate and Marge Saint, Roger and Barbara Udarian. What would motivate them to move to Ecuador to make contact with the Wadani people, this tribe in, this, in these remote jungles of Ecuador, where foreigners who had gone there before them had already been killed? What would motivate them to go into that place knowing that it might cost them their lives why would you do that and it did cost them their lives all five of these men four of them with young children would be speared to death for trying to share the love of Christ with the Wadani people if you don't know this story go read about it or go watch the movie end of the spear after that happened many Wadani people, even some of those who were involved in the murder of these men, they turned to Christ as, as the wives of these men stayed and they ministered to these people. They continued to love them. The very people who had killed their husbands. Who does that? What kind of a person would, would do that? What kind of a person would forgive? That's not normal. These aren't normal people. These are people who have been transformed by Christ. People who live with an otherworldly mindset. If you have your worship guide and you look at the, the quote there on the front, you may have already seen this. This is probably the most famous quote attributed to Jim Elliot. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'll interpret it for you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, this life, 
to gain that which he cannot lose, eternal life. So the first key to a victorious Christian life is losing your life. Being born of God. Jesus said, you must be born again. It means the old you must die and you must have new life in Christ. That's the first key. The next three keys all correspond to these three tests that John has been kind of going through throughout this letter. And if you have this handout, if you don't have one of these, we have some of these available. That's the Bible Project outline on the front. And then on on the back, uh, we have the three tests. The first test is the theological test. What do we believe? What is is true? Uh, The second test is the moral test related to righteousness. Do we obey? And the third test is the social test related to love. Do we love? Are we loving God and are we loving others? So these three tests all are going to correspond to the three next three keys of the Christian life, of a victorious Christian life. So the second key to a victorious Christian life is related to the first test. What do we believe? Or do we believe? Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So this word here for believe is the same idea as having faith in. So the word believe and faith in the Greek are, are connected. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 4, the second half of verse 4 says, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John's language here is explicit. He's saying there is an exclusivity here. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's a clear reflection of John 14, 6, which we had read and had talked about with the children. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John is saying here, the same thing Jesus said. The only way to have eternal life and to overcome the world is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is not just some blind faith. I hear people say things like, well, I believe there's a God. Or I believe in something greater, something out there, some higher power out there that helps me to be a better person. But that won't cut it. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the only Savior, and the Son of God. Jesus pulls no punches. No one comes to the Father except through me. We talk about a lot about the, the Reformation around here and the, the five solas of the Reformation. One of them, solus Christus, Christ alone. And as a Christian, that's a walk of faith every single day to confess that. To confess, I'm trusting in Christ alone. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I'm born again, and so it's just I coast the rest of my life, right? Christ alone, yeah, easy. No, it's not easy. It's a walk of faith. It's a continual trusting. The first commandment, God said, you shall have no other gods 
before me. I think that's a parallel to Christ alone, right? There are no other gods. There is no other Savior except Jesus Christ and him alone. And we're tempted every single day to look to false saviors, to look to false sources of hope. I hate to spoil the ending of 1 John for you. We're going to see it in a couple weeks. Hopefully you've read this before. But the very last verse of this chapter of chapter 5 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What an interesting way to end this entire letter, this entire argument about assurance and victory. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Think we need that reminder every day? Christ alone. Keep Christ at the center of your life. Don't try to replace him with false Christs that don't satisfy. Do I even need to list the things that we have in our lives that we put in place of Christ? I think we all probably have a list, and I think there's probably a lot of similar things on those lists. John's message is to believe in Christ To believe in him alone as the son of God. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on John chapter 14 where Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here's what he says about faith in Christ. He says, faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely. This is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of all his disciples. He's talking about us. No doubt the members of that little band which sat around the table at the Last Supper had believed already. They had proved the reality of their faith by giving up everything for Christ's sake. Yet what does their Lord say to them here? Once more he presses on them the old lesson, the lesson which with, with which they first began. Believe, believe more, believe in me. Brothers and sisters, day by day let us walk this walk of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the second key to a victorious Christian life, believing in Jesus. The third key to a victorious Christian life is related to the second test. Do we obey? Verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Obeying and keeping God's commandments, as John has reiterated over and over, is the evidence and the assurance of love for God and love for others. He's mentioned this, as I said, several times, and now he adds another important truth to this in verse 3, the second half of verse 3 there. And his commandments are not burdensome. The word here for burdensome, uh, it's It's the word for heavy. Uh, That's how it's translated in other places in the New Testament. 
In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees, and he calls them out for their hypocrisy. He says they preach, but do not practice. That's where we get the the phrase, practice what you preach. Jesus said they tie up heavy burdens. So this word heavy here, describing the burdens. Heavy burdens is the word that John uses here for burdensome. The scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. So John here is saying that God's commandments are not like the commandments of the Pharisees and the scribes. What is the difference? God doesn't command us to do things that are not for his glory or for our good. The man-made commandments may be oppressive. They may be for the benefit of those who are making them. But they're not not necessarily for God's glory or for our own good. We know that the Pharisees actually added hundreds of commandments to, to God's law and to what they expected the people to do. And they were heavy burdens that were placed on people. I don't know about you, but when I'm asked to do something or when I'm commanded to do something, one of my favorite questions to ask is, why? Right? Or what's in it for me? Why should I do this? As a kid, it was, why mom? Why do I need to do what you're telling me to do? Is this for my good? What am I getting out of this? That was, that was my heart attitude. And when we lived in China, I really struggled with this. Uh, feeling like there were a lot of, of rules, a lot of man-made things that, that people were expected to do or that I was expected to do that just kind of seemed arbitrary. Like, what's the point in this, right? Why are we, you know, living here in the States, I probably didn't think much about it because I just grew up with it, like speed limits and all these things. That are just, we kind of think like, well, you know, why is it 55 and not 65? Or why can't I go five over? Sometimes some of these things just seem very arbitrary. But it was, it was a struggle because it was like, well, how does, this, how does this help me or how does this help other people? Actually, it was probably benefiting somebody else's pockets in a lot of ways. But brothers and sisters, our God is not like this. He does not put arbitrary burdens on our shoulders. That's what people do. That's what man-made rules and commandments do. It's not at all to say that Man-made laws are not necessary. They are often necessary, and they are often for our protection. Please don't hear me say that they're not. But our frustration with the commandments of men should not lead us to assume that God is a hard taskmaster. John here wants to dispel that myth. His emphasis throughout this letter has been that our obedience is evidence of God's love at work in us and evidence that we are his children. He gives us commandments that are for his glory and for our good, not just individually, but collectively. So let us see his commandments as a gift from him. In Matthew chapter 11, a passage that many of us are probably familiar with, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then here's a couple commandments. Take my yoke upon you, that's a commandment, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't think we often think about that passage in relation to obeying God's commandments. But Jesus is saying, come, take my yoke upon, upon you. Obey me, do what I tell you to do, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not laying a heavy burden on your shoulder. In fact, it's a picture of, of us walking with Christ and him giving us the strength to obey him and to love and serve him. And the promise twice there in those verses, I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls. That picture of rest is exactly opposite of the man-made burdens that were being placed on people by the Pharisees and the scribes. So this third key to the victorious Christian life is obedience to God's non-burdensome commandments. The fourth and final key then is the third test. Do we love? We spent a lot of time the the past few weeks talking about this. Um, In the second half of this letter, we, from chapter 3, verse 11 on, kind of the first John is split up into God is light in the first half, and then God is love in the second half. Um, been a lot about loving one another and love coming from God. God is love, so we love him. And it's as if John is, is saying, how many different ways can I say the same thing here? How many ways can I repeat myself and say the same thing and continue to say Add, continue to add to those things. So, so why does John keep repeating himself? Remember, one of his purposes for writing is to reassure true believers, those who are being enticed by these false teachers, to reassure them of who they are in Christ, to reassure them of the victory that they have. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he talked about the spirit of the Antichrist, about those who are not from God, those who are enticing the true believers to leave the faith and to turn away from God. And then the second half of chapter 4, he reassures them that we are from God. We are the true believers if we love God and love one another. So he's, he's kind of pointing out to these, these three tests. He's saying, don't believe those who are not fulfilling these three tests, especially the tests of love. So he calls those, throughout this letter, he calls those who do not believe the first test, he calls them liars. He calls those who do not obey liars. That's the second test. And he calls those who don't not, do not love their brothers liars. That's the third t- test. So all John re- returns to all three of these. And he's saying if, we're, if we do not do these things, if we don't believe in Jesus, if we don't obey God, if we don't love one another, then we're liars. Just like those who are trying to deceive us, the Antichrist, who are trying to pull us away from Christ. So these tests, these three tests here, all tie us back to John's main point here in this passage. We overcome the world because we have been born of God and we are victorious through our faith in Jesus Christ. We referenced Romans 8 uh, on Easter Sunday. We talked about it a little bit, that great chapter on assurance that has many parallels with 1 John. And we, we read part of it for our assurance of pardon today especially that section in verse 37. In all these things, he's talking about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. 
And John actually uses, or Paul uses the word for conquerors that John is using here for, for overcoming and victory. And he puts this prefix on it saying the more than, so more than the word that John is using, more than conquerors. It's this rare word that Paul is using to like just basically say it's, you can't even fathom. It's, it's so great. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that is assurance that we can have in this life. But it's not just assurance that we get in this life. It's in the life to come, which John points to over and over in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you're scared at the book of Revelation, I want to encourage you. um, Well, it's still scary because it's like visions of crazy things. But if you want to sit down and read the book of Revelation, there's really one main theme that you need to, to know. It's that the lamb has conquered. Jesus is the conquering lamb. And that's what the entire book of Revelation is about. That we worship the conquering lamb. And 17 times in the book of Revelation, John uses this word conquer. And he uses it to talk about the churches. He says those who conquer, some translations say overcome. But the message at the end of those letters to all the churches is that to him who conquers, I will do these certain things. And then we... We see this theme throughout the book of Revelation. But there's two particular visions that I, wanna, I wanna, want us to consider that I hope will remind us and encourage us that even though victory in this life sometimes seems really difficult to experience, God has promised us victory in the life to come. And again, this victory that we look forward to, it's not grounded in anything that we have done. It's not grounded in us or our own effort to be right with God, but it's grounded in what he has done for us. So I'm going to read two sections from the book of Revelation. The first one is in chapter 5, and this is John's vision of heaven. The second one I'm going to read is in chapter 21, and this is his vision of the new heavens and the new earth coming down. So both of them beginning at the beginning of those chapters, you can turn there if you want. Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who has conquered? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus Christ. He has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Chapter 21. Verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Notice the parallel to Paul's language in Romans 8 there. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Notice that, without payment. Andrew, perfect, you didn't even know I was going to read this. Andrew had his credit card up here with the kids, right? You can't buy that water. You can't get to the gates of heaven and say, all right, Lord, I want the water. Here's what I've got to offer. To the one who conquers, the one who has been born of God, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Children of God, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let us pray. God, we praise you for the cross. We praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. That Christ laid down his life that we might live, that we might have forgiveness of sins, that we might have victory in this life and in the life to come. Not because of anything we've done, God, but because of your grace and your mercy poured out upon us at the cross. God, may we go out from here and live victorious Christian lives by faith in Christ by obedience to your commandments, by love for one another, because we have been born again of you, because we are your sons and your daughters. Let us live out that new identity. Let us live out the reality of who we are in a lost and broken and dying world. May we show forth the hope of the gospel. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.